I want to personally invite you to join me and all the other Brock stars for this year's 13th live and in-person plant stock event outside of Asheville, North Carolina in the little town of Black Mountain. It's 1,500 acres is loaded with wildlife, trees, trails, streams. It is a nature wonderland. And what's also a wonderland are all the incredible speakers that you get to hang with all weekend long, like Jane and Ann Esselstyn, Dr. Will Bolshewitz of Fiberfueled, Carly Bodrug, Miss Plant U, Dr. Gemma Newman is over from the UK. We have Dr. Don Musalem from the Mayo Clinic, John Mackey, the ex-CEO of Whole Food Market Stores, myself, Brian Hart, and a special appearance by the Plant Bros. Here's the kicker. All these Brock stars are there from Friday till Sunday, and they want to rub elbows with all of you, whether it's over buffets of Plant Strong Fair for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, whether it's going on an afternoon hike, a swim, pickleball, frisbee golf, kickball, cornhole, dancing. We're having live music. It's all there in this fun weekend extravaganza that we affectionately call Plant Stock. Simply go to liveplantstrong.com and then click on Plant Stock 2024 and grab yourself a ticket before they sell out. See you there. We know that you have choices and I am so proud of all of you for choosing to eat Plant Strong, whole food, plant-based, it is where it's at. There's some pretty powerful new research that shows that a keto-like diet may be associated with a higher risk of heart disease. And this is based on an average of 11.8 years of follow-up. And this is after adjustment for other risk factors for heart disease, such as diabetes, high blood pressure, obesity, and smoking. And the discovery is that people on a low-carbohydrate, high-fat diet had more than two times higher risk of having several major cardiovascular events, such as blockages in the arteries that needed to be opened with stenting procedures, heart attacks, stroke, and peripheral arterial disease. So again, thank you for your choice. I also know that you have lots of choices when it comes to what you subscribe to, and I want to thank you for subscribing and choosing Plant Strong Podcast. Now, another choice that you might be considering is whether or not to attend a Plant Strong retreat. And I am here to tell you that spending a week immersed in the lifestyle, surrounded by learning and laughter and incredible food, is one of the greatest gifts that you can give yourself. We have a few spots left this spring from April 16th to the 21st in gorgeous Black Mountain, North Carolina, and we are excited to announce our fall dates in Sedona, Arizona, that will be October 9th to the 14th. Both of these retreats will help you enhance or elevate your journey to eat more plants, and you'll be surrounded by our world-class team of physicians and behavioral experts to help you unlock your best path forward. Now, side note, we also offer CME and CEU credits for physicians, nurses, and other healthcare providers as part of the registration fee. 
To check out either of these events, simply go to plantstrongfoods.com and then click on more. I hope to see you in Black Mountain or Sedona, Arizona in 2023. About 10 years ago, I went into a private practice uh, focusing on health and primary care. And I had patients who had uh, prostate issues and concerns about prostate cancers. And so I started doing some reading about nutrition and prostate cancer. And I was um, surprised by just the amount of data that was out there, the amount of information, the amount of high quality studies that suggested that nutrition can markedly reduce the risk of prostate cancer. And I was asking myself, how is it that I was trained at Harvard and worked there for many years? I teach at Stanford uh, and I have not really been familiar with the depth breath and power of the data and I said to myself someone needs to write this book someone needs to tell this story someone needs to bring the studies in a simple way so that people can read the studies and make their own decision I'm Rip Esselstyn and welcome to the Plan Strong podcast the mission at Plan Strong is to further the advancement of all things within the plant-based movement we advocate for the scientifically proven benefits of plant-based living and envision a world that universally understands, promotes, and prescribes plants as a solution to empowering your health, enhancing your performance, restoring the environment, and becoming better guardians to the animals we share this planet with. We welcome you wherever you are on your Plant Strong journey, and I hope that you enjoy the show. A few facts to start this week's show. One in eight men will be diagnosed with prostate cancer at some point in their life, and one in 40 will succumb to this disease. Much like cardiovascular disease and many other lifestyle diseases, prostate cancer can mostly be prevented, and my guests today lay out the extensive research and practical solutions that can help you ward off prostate cancer which is the second leading cause of cancer in men. Dr. Benny Gavi, clinical assistant professor of medicine at Stanford University, has teamed up with researcher Maya Alone to compile more than 100 recent, reliable, and relevant international studies on the effects of diet on prostate cancer. What did they discover? <laughs> no surprise here, and I'm sure that you guessed it especially if you're a fan of this show, a whole food, plant-strong diet combined with exercise and screenings are your best defense against prostate cancer. Today, we discuss some of their favorite studies along with the biggest cancer-fighting foods to consume on a consistent basis. We also discuss various screening and exercise recommendations that they discovered when parsing through all the research and all of these are powerful tools in the toolbox to empower men and those of you who love those men to make healthy lifestyle changes that can save thousands of lives. Benny Gavi, you are a graduate of Harvard Medical School and you're currently a clinical assistant professor uh, of medicine at Stanford. Is that correct? That is correct. Beautiful, beautiful. And then 
And then Maya uh, Elon, am I, how do you pronounce your last name? Elon, you were close. Okay, Maya Elon, you are a second year medical student and a clinical researcher. And how in the world did you guys come together to create this wonderful dynamic duo trying to teach all, all of the men out there in the world about how to prevent prostate cancer in this new book? right? Preventing prostate cancer, which is fabulous, fabulous. Every male should have it on their, uh, on their bookshelves. Thank you. Yeah. So the story, uh, begins, uh, probably about, um, 10 years ago. Um, I, I work at Stanford as a teacher about 10 years ago, I went into a private practice, uh, focusing on health and primary care and I had patients who had uh, prostate issues and concerns about prostate cancers. And so I started doing some reading about nutrition and prostate cancer. And I was um, surprised by just the amount of data that was out there, the amount of information, the amount of high quality studies that suggested that nutrition can markedly reduce the risk of prostate cancer. And I was asking myself, how is it that I was trained at Harvard and worked there for many years? I teach at Stanford, uh, and I have not really been familiar with the depth, breadth, and power of the data. And I said to myself, someone needs to write this book. Someone needs to tell this story. Someone needs to bring the studies in a simple way so that people can read the studies and make their own decision. And uh, frankly, be, being a teacher, hospitalist-based doctor, um, office-based doctor, I just didn't have the time. And then uh, Maya's mom uh, and I worked in the office together. She's a medical assistant. And I met Maya, who is really bright, really smart. And I said, you know, I've had this project for two or three years sitting on my desk. I'm very emotionally committed to it. I just can't find the time to really write the book and put it together. Will you help me? And I was uh, fortunate uh, that she said yes. And I'll let you take it from there, Maya. <laughs> yeah, no, it was the perfect situation. We both happened to find each other at a perfect time. And in life, I was applying to medical school, and Dr. Gavi had this incredible passion. And it was just the timing fit perfectly. And you know, it was his passion, and and yeah. I put in the the work. And we read hundreds of articles. We, you know, skimmed the entire area of research in this work. And we we're both passionate about the same thing at the same time. Very fortuitous. So the data currently lets us know, and you guys have this in the book. And so I'm just reciting this, that one out of eight men will come down with prostate cancer. One out of 40 will die from prostate cancer. It's the second most frequent cancer in men. And it's the fifth leading cause of cancer deaths in men. Uh, these are kind of staggering numbers. And you guys in your book say that prostate cancer, for the most part, is preventable. And so are you blowing smoke or is this the truth? <laughs> uh, it's the truth. And, and let me start out with some of the most, um, you know, basic or, or fundamental studies, which I think are the twin studies, the genetic twin studies, when uh, several pretty large trials looking at tens of thousands of genetically identical twins. And when you look at, at, at these studies, 
um, only about half of the men get prostate cancer. And these are genetically identical people. Mm. And that, and so from a genetic point of view, it's at most 50%. And probably 50% is an overestimate because probably genetic twins probably eat similarly, you know, because they were raised in similar homes. And so that probably is an overestimate of the genetic contribution. So the genetic contribution to prostate cancer is low. At most, in one study, it was 42%. In another large study, it was 57%. And so it's not in our genes. So if it's not in our genes, what is it? Could be chance, but there's also a lot of data lifestyle. And not only um, is it, um, we know about lifestyle for prostate cancer, we know also a lot about lifestyle for heart disease and many other forms of cancer. So prostate cancer, it's not an outlier. It's really um, what we're learning from a lot of chronic diseases that lifestyle have uh, a very important um, impact. Right. Uh, Maya, anything you don't want to add on to that? Yeah, I feel like when people hear the word cancer, there's a lot of fear surrounding that. Most of it is from the unknown and the thought that, you know, cancer is out of our control. But like Dr. Gavi was saying, these twin studies have, you know, indicated that more of your risk for prostate cancer might actually be within your control than you realize. So you've got these twin studies, you've got studies on ethnicity, you've got studies on um, diagnostic technology. All of these studies are indicating that those aren't the primary causes of prostate cancer incidence. So like Dr. Gavi was saying, what is? Um, and then there are countless studies that look further into lifestyle being, you know, your diet, your exercise patterns, your uh, routine checkups, all of these things and their impact on your incidence. And there is so much more of this story that has not really been talked about yet. Mm -hmm. One thing that I, I think is just really important in medical school, at Harvard Medical School, I wasn't thought, taught that health begins in the kitchen, mm -hmm. <laughs> not in the doctor's office and maybe the gym, but mostly in the kitchen. <laughs> and yeah. I think that's something that uh, we're learning as doctors and we need to pass it on to our patients. Yeah, no, I, I think that the kitchen trumps everything, absolutely everything. It's interesting because I, I will turn 60 this year in 2023. And it's interesting how many of my friends are complaining about all these things from, you know, uh, frequent urination, difficulty going to the bathroom, bifurcation of the, you know, the stream uh, when you're urinating, all these things, some of which I would imagine are just a function of as you age, the, the prostate typically enlarges. Uh, but also, I mean, I've heard a quote that, you know, all men, if you live long enough, will get prostate cancer. Now, I don't know if that's accurate or not, but it's just interesting to me that the prostate just keeps on getting, getting a little bit bigger and bigger. It's kind of obnoxious. <laughs> right. That is something so many men don't really talk about, um, you know, with prostate cancer, with, you know, benign prostatic, prostatic hyperplasia, many of the conditions surrounding the prostate, the symptoms that manifest are not really discussed and are so prevalent and really do impact life. Um, and that's kind of one of the things we wanted to illuminate with our book. 
you know, we used to think, and, and maybe we still do think, that atherosclerosis is inevitable, that heart attacks are inevitable. Uh, I think many people probably still believe that. And we know that to a large degree, coronary artery disease could be prevented with a very proactive lifestyle. And so I think we have to be careful about what we think is inevitable because then it just becomes something that we just live out if we don't make the changes. And so I do think that prostate cancer you know, is common, but it could be reduced. I think also dealing with the effects of prostate cancer in somebody's in their, their 50s or 60s is different than dealing it with their 80s or 90s. Uh, I think loss of sexual function in somebody's 50s is a lot more difficult. Loss of bladder function. Um, I think people have um, uh, expectations for what their life will be like in their 50s and 60s. And when those expectations are not met, that, that could um, lead to difficulties and often difficulties that men may not share with other people. Right. Well, I want you to know that you have a very sympathetic audience here because all the listeners, I would imagine most listeners of the Plant Strong podcast are familiar with my father's work at the Cleveland Clinic showing that you can prevent and reverse heart disease going back to, you know, he started his doing this research in 1984. So, you know, the fact that you can do this with, with the prostate cancer is, I think, something that everybody in listening uh, is like, yes, I absolutely, you know, can get my head around this. So let's go through some of the things that we can do with our lifestyle to help give us the best chance of, uh, of preventing that prostate cancer. So we can be in that, you know, 50 or 50 or greater percentage range in preventing it. So in the book you talk about, it's chapter number two, vegetables and cruciferous vegetables. Go ahead, swing away on that. Uh, I can start us off on cruciferous vegetables. So some of you may be unfamiliar with the term cruciferous vegetables. So I'm just gonna really briefly, uh, that includes broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, kale, turnips, and so many more vegetables. And uh, these are like little super fighters for our body. Um, so cruciferous vegetables and vegetables in general have a lot of powerful uh, anti-cancer properties that come in the form of phytochemicals. Phytochemicals are plant products, compounds that our bodies can't make, so we have to get in our diet. And uh, they have um, basically anti-cancerous properties. And that's just one you know, small way that we kind of try to explain why cruciferous vegetables are so good for us. But I think it's just when you see the impact of eating the whole vegetable, not just those you know, specific compounds, you really see um, how much of a difference it can make. So we found that cruciferous vegetables can help reduce prostate cancer risk um, significantly by over 50%. Um, if eaten in high quantities and, you know, in a regular basis. What's your definition of high quantities? Yeah, so the, um, the American Cancer Society recommends two and a half cups of vegetables a day. But I think adding vegetables to your diet is, you know, a gradual process. It's a process that, you know, you have to incorporate into your life in a way that works for you. Um, I, I try to stick with the American Cancer Society recommendation personally, but, um, but it's really whatever works with your lifestyle. Benny, what about you? Did you have any cruciferous vegetables for breakfast this morning? I actually did. <laughs> <laughs> I actually had um, 
Uh -huh. uh, well, you, usually we have them with dinner. And then when my kids don't finish them, then I'll put them in the refrigerator and throw them in my smoothie in the morning. And then uh, sometimes uh, I'll have an egg white omelet with them, uh, which is what I did today. I don't have a lot of egg whites, but sometimes I'll do that. And that was this morning. But uh, many days of the week, I'll start uh, breakfast will be vegetables. And what's interesting to me is that, you know, you guys mentioned in the book how less than 10 percent of Americans are consuming two and a half cups of vegetables a day. And which, that's even less in certain states. It just oh, depends on the states you're looking at. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that doesn't bode well, right? <laughs> For, uh, for, for us giving ourselves the best chance to help prevent prostate cancer. If we're not eating, we're not eating fruits and specifically vegetables and cruciferous vegetables. Mm. Um, okay. Anything else you want to say about vegetables and cruciferous vegetables, or you want to move on? I would say as a practicing doctor, you know, one of the things that I try to help people is with behavioral change. I think many people know what we should do more of. I think it's just hard to do it. And, um, and I think um, two things. One is we want to retain pleasure. And so we really want people to cook delicious food with their broccoli or delicious cauliflower or broccoli sprouts. So we don't want to take pleasure away. But I also want to reassure people that our sense of taste and pleasure and what we're used to uh, can adapt over time. And there, there may be a time where you know, maybe are used to having a certain breakfast and it's a sense of pleasure. We're a lot more open to change than sometimes we give ourselves credit. And our sense of pleasure can change a lot more than we give ourselves credit. I couldn't agree with you more. And I, I, you know, I'm like, no one that I know, com you know, comes out of the womb liking alcohol, smoking cigarettes, the taste of coffee. These are all learned behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think the same could be true especially when you know how beneficial it is for vegetables and cruciferous vegetables and the like. Exactly. All right. So let's talk about, you say tomato, I say tomato, <laughs> tomatoes and lycopene and why, why this is such a dynamic uh, help in preventing prostate cancer. Yeah. So tomatoes are wonderful. It's actually like, I think the second most consumed vegetable by, by people in the U S uh, mostly because of tomato sauce. Um, and uh, again, like we were saying for cruciferous vegetables, you've got those good, good phytochemicals, specifically lycopene, which is really an antioxidant warrior. Um, but like I was saying for cruciferous vegetables as well, uh, we don't want to just like narrow in on the lycopene because tomatoes also have folate and potassium and a bunch of vitamins that make them so powerful. And one of my favorite studies in this chapter is one that compares like a lycopene extract and the effects that that has on people who consume it versus the whole tomato um, and you know the protective effects of the entire tomato and you just you can't compare when you eat a whole plant a whole food the way it was the way it comes it just does have such a powerful um anti-cancer anti-prostate cancer property um yeah. and like that might be one of the reasons for that and isn't that so interesting because so many so many people are trying to take a shortcut. They just want to take the pill or the supplement, and it's not nearly as effective as the symphony that you're going to get in the in the whole food. Dr. Benny, what about tomatoes versus tomatoes and broccoli? Uh, is there a difference? Because I, I saw in the book 
that uh, there is a, there's a difference when you kind of combine the tomatoes with some other like maybe cruciferous vegetables. Yes, I mean, I think they, are, they work better in combination. I mean, I think back to the symphony, yeah. I think back to the diversity of um, foods and, and, and healthy chemicals that we want in our body. So, so we're all, you know, diversity is great. I, I, think, I think we don't want people to consume only one food group. Mm -hmm. yeah. You don't go to a band to just listen to the guitarist. You want to hear, you know, the piano and you want to hear the singer. And that is really what we see with vegetables when you combine the broccoli and the tomato. I think I remember the study you're referencing. They looked at just tomatoes, just broccoli, and then people yeah. who ate both. Yeah. 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 And I mean, it just, there's like a stepwise increase in the powerful impact that they have together. Yeah. And there's this synergy with, you know, and, and this has been stated by numerous people, but there's sort of this visual synergy when you look at a salad and the multiple colors, you look at the plate of a multiple colors, there's a visual, a visual synergy between what is visually appealing and what is healthy to us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Speaking of powerful, you guys are fans of soy and the isoflavones. And uh, you know, there's a lot of, I think, mixed messages around soy. A lot of people are scared, but you're like, hey man, we're fans of soy. So let's try and put people's fears to rest okay let me speak to that a little bit around people have concerns about soy and cancer particularly about soy and breast cancer and one of the reasons is that soy the, the molecular structure of soy has some similarities similarities to the molecular structure of estrogen and so people are concerned that soy may function like estrogen there have been studies of soy consumption in women who have had breast cancer, so the highest risk group you can imagine. And in those groups, people who consume soy do as well as people who don't consume and sometimes even better. Hmm. And so soy consumption in women who have recovered from breast cancer does not cause more issues. And that's the highest risk group. So I think that should reassure um, people who have concerns about the estrogen effect of soy, that there's really not much of an issue. And um, also when soy is in a food, you know, there's only so much soy you could eat in a day. And it's, again, it's part of a diverse diet. I think we wouldn't recommend people, you know, take cups of soy extracts or soy pills. I, I think that that would not be a good thing, but, Soy is a component of a, of a healthy diet. In people who do that, they have healthier outcomes. They live longer, they have less cancers. That's just what the data shows. Yeah, yeah. So let me ask you this. So, so Maya, I, I try and stay away from the soy protein isolates and concentrates, because mm -hmm. I've heard that it can rate jack up the uh, insulin-like growth factor number one, which promotes tumors and cancers. Do you, what, what food, what soy foods do you recommend or steer people towards? Yeah, it's a great question. Yeah. And I think the answer to your question really is like the heart of our book. We wanted the data to lead people to their own conclusions. So we present the data as it is. And the data shows that avoiding those, you know, concentrates of supplements and focusing on the whole product. So like edamame, the beans as they come or uh, tofu as it comes. Those are really healthy and effective ways of eating soy. 
um, that are both protective and really good for you. Yeah, we're I, just the other night I had tempeh in my stir fry, which I, I loved. Uh, occasionally we have miso, uh, mm-hmm. you know, which is made from soybeans. What I found interesting, Dr. Um, Dr. Benny, was that in, in the studies that you guys referenced uh, in this chapter, there was no benefit with those with advanced prostate cancer. Mm-hmm. Um, but earlier on, a great deal. Um, I think I remember, if, if Dr. Gravi doesn't mind, because I actually, I remember yeah. this study specifically. So there's yeah. like an alteration in the chemistry of your cells, the way that your cells like present um, basically their little receptors um, for soy molecules when you progress from you know early stages of prostate cancer to later stages of prostate cancer. So a healthy cell and early stage prostate cancer cells will express a little receptor on it for the protective factors in soy. Um, and then later in prostate cancer, the cell stops expressing those cells. So you're not gonna be able to have that same benefit as you would have earlier or in a healthier cell, if that makes sense. Yep, ab- absolutely. Uh, so, Dr. Benny, so you had a smoothie this morning. Have you had any green tea yet today? <laughs> Not yet. That will be probably around midday, early afternoon. Okay. So you have a whole chapter on the world's healthiest drink, which you guys say is green tea. I'm not surprised, but I didn't know it was the healthiest thing on the planet. So what is it about green tea? Well, I think one way to think about it is that it's a plant, right? So we're drinking a plant extract. So in the way that we're, we're eating plants, we're getting all those phytochemicals and all of those antioxidants and anti-inflammatory molecules. Here, we're drinking uh, an extract of a plant. And uh, there's a lot of antioxidants and anti-inflammatory chemicals that just do a lot of really good. And I think more importantly, in observational studies, people seem to be healthier and having better outcomes. And uh, I like my green tea a little flavored. So I'll buy like a pomegranate flavored green tea or um, um, there's one other, just different flavors that they'll put in them. Sometimes a little blueberry. So you get a little antioxidants from the blueberry or the pomegranate, and then it kind of gives it a little bit more flavor. Sometimes I'll drink straight up green tea as well, but I like it with a little flavoring. Right, right. Maya, have you had any green tea yet today? Not yet, but again, it's my my dinner drink. That's a really easy way. Dr. Gavi in the past has described it as a salad and a drink, and I really love that. It's just it's such an easy way to get a nutritious benefit. Yeah, there is a little caffeine in green tea, and so uh, I probably don't consume it beyond three or four p.m. But Maya is a medical student; significantly <laughs> younger, so she's probably fine with it. But you know, once you kind of cross into the 50s, the caffeine affects you more at nighttime for sleep. Yeah. Well, you guys, one of the things that really um, shocked isn't the right word, but I just was like, wow, this is powerful, was you referenced in this chapter how it prevented 90% of prostate cancer incidents in the experimental group versus the control group. And that's those are some serious, serious outcomes right there. Mm-hmm. Those are serious outcomes. And also, you know, the researchers, these are serious researchers. These are not, you know, people who are kind of casually reporting what they observed or what they observed in their family members or their friends. These are serious researchers published in serious journals. And 
one of my themes for this book early on was to kind of let the, the researchers kind of speak the data and for us to kind of get out of the way. Mm-hmm. You know, this isn't one of those books where, oh, this is what I did and this is how much better I feel. This is really, and, and yeah, that's what the data shows and we want that to come clear. And as you know, um, with the help of Maya, this book is really just full of a lot of really powerful studies like that. Oh, it's it's incredible all the different studies that you've referenced in this super excellent excellent job so let's move on from green tea uh i'm gonna have a cup as soon as we're done with this Um, but let's talk about foods that you guys recommend people shy away from or avoid uh, because they can increase your chance of getting prostate and i'd love for you to start with eggs which you had a egg white omelet this morning maybe but uh eggs and how uh, it sounds like eggs are not the healthiest foot forward. Sure. Yeah. So again, like Dr. Gavi was saying about letting the data speak for itself, we did include a few, um, I think it was three specifically, three studies that are kind of, you know, at the forefront of discovering why eggs might not be as healthy for us as we thought they were, but mostly it focuses on eggs in excess. So a lot of um, the food groups that we talk about in this chapter are excessive amounts of this food and why that could be potentially dangerous. And, um, you know, finding moderation in life is always important. And um, Dr. Gavi and I would never recommend, you know, cutting a food group completely out of your diet, Um, but, you know, finding ways to limit or to replace these foods with other potentially more healthy foods and eggs, eggs are one of those. So when you say, because what I what I read was that eggs actually will increase your chance of prostate uh, getting prostate cancer by 90, 89%, right? So what is the the upper limit where if you go over that it increases your chances? Are you saying you can you could have an egg a day or or Yeah, I think it was looking at people who had like two and a half eggs a day. A like it was it was oh, okay, yeah. So right. So I was looking at maybe maybe a small, what might seem like a small amount. And yeah, that's what they found. They found that it really, it really did have a strong correlation. And is that the whole egg? Is that the the white and the yolk? What do yes. you think? That's yeah. correct. Huh. It's well, the whole egg. There, there is a suggestion that it may be a protein called choline, yes. which is in the egg yolk. And so that's why um, I think the egg white may be healthier. But before uh, we did this research for the book, I had a lot more eggs. I loved eggs. And now I'll probably limit it to, you know, maybe two or three egg whites uh, a week uh-huh. for me uh-huh. um, and n- no egg yolk, you know, for the most part. I mean, but just to be clear, I mean, you know, we're human. Uh, we're going to um, try things. You know, people offer us things, social occasions. Um, sometimes my kids will not finish their sandwich and I'll finish <laughs> it for them and they're having an egg sandwich. And so, you know, we have to be realistic that we live in a life. But I think that with the eggs, there was also one study that was neutral. And so I would say that, um, you know, these food studies are hard to do. Um, I would say that when it comes to eggs, because we get a lot of questions about eggs, I think are eggs good or bad? It depends a little bit what you were going to eat if you weren't going to eat the eggs. (laughs) You know, um, you know, if people are going to have pancakes and syrup, Mm -hmm. then maybe eggs are better because at least it's not so much carbohydrates and sugar and people have this, you know, they feel tired after a big carb meal, but there isn't any, you know, so it depends a little bit what you're going to 
eat if you don't eat the eggs, but there is certainly better. You know, there, there's an opportunity for plants. There's an opportunity, I think, that um, many days I'll eat for breakfast um, whole grain toast with maybe um, like some heirloom tomatoes and a little olive oil or some avocado or even avocado. And I'll do like a cucumber on top of the avocado on the whole grain toast. I think that we could do better. Yeah. The, the, the eggs, um, again, you know, my kids actually eat a fair bit of eggs because they were, they want to eat pancakes and syrup and I get them to eat the eggs. I'm not going to eat avocado toast. And so, you know, I guess it's okay. We do the best that we can, depending where we are in life. I think maybe a bigger message is eggs are a little bit of a mixed picture, uh, but we could do better. Yeah. Well, let me just, we at Plant Strong like to say there's only two things wrong with the egg and that's the yolk and the white. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, and I could, I could go on and on about why we're not a fan of eggs. So just know that uh, with, on this, on this podcast, we're not a fan of moderation, right? <laughs> we like, we like extremes. We like people that are taking the kale by the stock and, uh, and cutting out the offending food groups because, you know, the most precious gift that we have on this planet is our health. Truly. I truly believe that. Let's move on to dairy. What about dairy? Uh, low fat versus whole yeah, so there's kind of a linear connection as you go into higher fat dairies and the risk for prostate cancer increasing. Um, so the whole milks, the whole fat dairies, those are associated with not only increased rates of prostate cancer, but increased rates of lethal forms of prostate cancer. Uh, and then as you go down towards you know the low fat um, dairy options, there is um, some connection or studies have found no connection. So um, based on those studies, uh, the researchers who did them you know, recommended leaning towards the low fat dairy options, or if you can, you know, dairy alternatives. I know I really love almond milk. Um, also right. a big fan of soy milk. Uh, and that, yeah. that works really well. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I, again, in, in this chapter, when I was reading it, I saw that, you know, one of the issues with dairy is you get all this calcium, which, oh, we think we need all this calcium, but the calcium actually can block the vitamin D absorption which will then uh, stop the protection of these uh, the, the prostate cells and help contribute to it turning into cancer. So it's funny how everything is so interconnected and interwoven. This is why to me, again, I am such a fan of plants because I feel like plants, just mother nature had it right. And like protein, for example, the protein you're getting from plants, it's like the Goldilocks version of <laughs> protein. It truly is. Whereas, you know, meat is, is the next thing that you recommend that people avoid. Meat, it's, just, it's like got this janky kind of sulfur, sulfurous form of protein that, that wreaks havoc. So what, let's, let's now go to meat. And what, do you, what did you guys find in your research with meat? Well, my, uh, I mean, it's a carcinogen, <laughs> for one. Um, need I say more? But Maya, I'll let you get into a little bit of the details around that. Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, so the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is a division of the World Health Organization, has independently classified red and processed meats as carcinogens and independent predictors of prostate cancer. Wow. And yeah, I mean, that speaks for itself. It's a pretty strong, <laughs> strong statement. Um, so we, you know, kind of start that section of the chapter with that, uh, just to let that message sink in. And then there's also a ton of studies that just show um, as countries 
consumption of meat increases, you also see their rates of prostate cancer in the entire country increase as well, again, in a linear fashion. Um, and that correlation is really powerful. You know, I, I'm using this word a lot today, but it, it's also interesting. My father, when he gives his talk on preventing and reversing heart disease, he talks about how in the whole nation of Japan in 1956, there were 18 autopsy proven, I think, or cases of death by prostate cancer. I mean, 18 in the whole nation of, of Japan. You know, now it's it's right up the same as ours. And back then they were predominantly, you know, a, a, a vegetarian culture. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a pretty powerful stat as well. Right. You can look at some parts of Asia and they're going to have 50 times less incidence of prostate cancer than we do. And one of the one of the studies actually references that possibly, you know, their primary source of protein being tofu as opposed to meat could mm -hmm. be a contributor, could be a protective factor. Yeah. 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 All right, let's move on to obesity, uh, BMI, and exercise. Uh, you guys have a whole chapter on this and how this can help or hinder our chances of getting prostate cancer. Who wants to start it off with, uh, with obesity, BMI, and exercise? Well, let me start off by setting the foundation that um, obesity is correlated with so many diseases, uh, so many cancers. Uh, diabetes, which by itself is a risk factor for cancer. And so um, the impact on prostate is consistent with so many other cancers where obesity is a risk factor. And so obviously reducing that will markedly reduce, um, reduce people's risk of prostate cancer, other cancer, heart disease, and improve the quality of their life. Right. Uh, in terms of exercise, um, uh, you know, th there's some really cool studies that I want Maya to speak about because I know mm -hmm. she enjoys speaking about them. But again, um, it's good for the prostate. And, you know, what's good about a lot of this, a lot of these things they recommend, there are so many good for other parts of your health, you know, mood, sleep, um, so many other parts of our, of our health. But mm -hmm. uh, I'll, I'll let Maya talk a little bit more about the exercise and <laughs> prostate cancer. Yeah, Dr. Kavi knows this is my favorite study that that I read. Probably well, out of like just um, it's I think it's in chapter one. That it's not that one, but that's a good one as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we read maybe three or four hundred articles, and this one always stands out to me. But basically, uh, researchers looked at a group of men and they compared their blood's ability to fight prostate cancer cells before and after a single hour of exercise, just one single hour. And just after one hour, their blood was able to fight prostate cancer cells 31% more effectively. And yeah. if that's not powerful, I don't know what is, because what can two hours do? What can a week do? And you really just have to start somewhere and already it'll make a difference. So what's your recommendation as far as exercise uh, each day for people? 20 minutes, yeah. what do you like? Right. So the American Cancer Society recommends 150 minutes a week, which kind of goes down to like 20 minutes a day. Right. You know, I think we also have to acknowledge where people are starting from. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a pretty sedentary society. So if we told people an hour a day, people are like, whoa, that, that's not realistic. Um, but humans evolved to move, not to sit. And, you know, um, 20 minutes a day is probably really low in terms of uh, the benefit that we can get. 
I don't know where it plateaus. Is it one hour a day, one and a half hour a day? It's probably more than 20 minutes. I think we probably would get significant more benefit. Um, looking at other studies at other outcomes, um, I think 30 minutes to an hour a day would be really good of some kind of movement if people can do that. Mm -hmm. Have you guys had any uh, exercise today? Yeah, I love to start my morning with some yoga. Oh. Best way. I have a big window in my room, so I get to see the sunrise with it. Nice, nice. How about you, Benny? Not yet. For me, it's usually in the mornings, I'm getting the kids off to school and all yeah. of that. And so it's going to be uh, when I get home around 5 or 5.30. Right. What do you like to do? Well, uh, I like to exercise with, I have a, a stationary bicycle, jogging, swimming, um, and then uh, I'll do workouts with my wife, actually. And the nice thing about that is we sort of commit to each other because invariably there's always other competing things to do. Yeah. But uh, if you make a commitment with another person, you're more likely, I'm more likely to keep it. Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. All right. Let's go to screenings. Okay. Screening for prostate cancer. I can tell you guys, as I said, I'm, I'm almost 60 years old. And other than the, you know, uh, bend over and the digital rectal exam, uh, I've never done anything else. And uh, I'm wondering if uh, for other men that are in my boat, what do you recommend? Um, well, it's, it's a, well, um, a conversation with your primary care doctor. Um, and the, the one common option that people can have is uh, the blood test called a PSA. Yeah. And it's a blood test that could be checked once a year, once every two years, but it is helpful and has been shown to be helpful in detecting <clears throat> prostate cancer. I think that it's um, helpful in the absolute amount in that um, the higher the number, the greater the chance there is a prostate cancer. I think it's even more helpful to actually trend it over time and to see what the trajectory of change is mm. in terms of diagnosing prostate cancer. Uh, and if the um, PSA is elevated or there is, there is some concern, there has been the development of prostate MRIs and the imaging has gotten mm. better. And so that's um, an additional piece of information where you could look at the prostate. Obviously, there's also biopsies. Those are pretty painful and difficult and have some risks. And so those are reserved for higher risk situations. But I think it's traditionally been a blood test. Uh, in some people, it's a it's an MRI or an ultrasound, uh, not as good as an MRI. The, the, the digital rectal examination is also uh, an option. I don't think it's as good as the blood test, mm -hmm. certainly not as good as an MRI, because when, when a doctor does that exam, they're really only feeling a part of the gland that's kind of protruding into the rectum area. So you're really getting a very small feel of the gland. But if there is a nodule, if, if the gland feels um, abnormal, that could also be another indication. Right. Obviously, also uh, symptoms. Uh, so having a conversation about uh, a dramatic change in the uh, pattern of urination. Yeah. Uh, also, if there's any kind of pain, burning, uh, any kind of blood or anything like that, that should also prompt an evaluation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, I... <laughs> Yeah, I would, uh, I would hope any blood in the urine would, would prompt uh, a, a visit to a, 
your physician. Mm -hmm. Yeah, screening is a very individual process. Uh, there are certain like risk factors for prostate cancer that might indicate that you should be screening earlier or perhaps that you, you don't want to screen. And that's definitely a decision Dr. Gravy and I both recommend like the individual have with their physician. Mm -hmm. The PSA test has had kind of an interesting history. Initially, it was commonly used and then people thought that perhaps there was an overdiagnosis of prostate cancer that wasn't meaningful. And then the United States Preventative Task Force, approximately 2012, recommended that doctors no longer do the PSA. And then um, that was reversed in about 2016 or 2018. They kind of went back and said, you know what, we're seeing more prostate cancers now. And so maybe that 2012 decision was premature. Um, and so then the recommendations were put back on the dashboard. But I think the adoption of that has been heterogeneous because, um, because uh, of that 2012 recommendation. Yeah. So, Benny, this is something that you, putting this book together, that you've wanted to do, you didn't really have the time, you recruited Maya, you two kind of went into it. How long did it take you guys to write this book and go through all the, the research studies? Uh, well, I probably was accumulating studies for about a year or two, but again, you know, doing it kind of 5% of my time, uh, keeping my eyes and ears open, attending conferences on lifestyle medicine, which I, I do, uh, you know, um, as part of my general education, uh, conferences where your dad was a speaker. <laughs> I got to hear him speak five, five, six years ago. Um, and so, uh, but then, then Maya and I worked in, I think it's about a year, Maya. Uh, yeah, Maya is almost two. pretty efficient, hard worker, one to two years. Yeah. Yeah. And so Maya, you were kind of working on this book before you were in medical school, correct? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So how has medical school been for you having done all this research? Uh, are you, do you, uh, is there any point in time when you're like, uh, you know what, let me tell you guys a little something about what I know. <laughs> yeah, we had like a, so one of the ways that we study in medical school is like in groups where we tackle patient cases together and mm -hmm. we had one on prostate cancer and I definitely led the, the charge on that one. <laughs> I bet they must've been so incredibly impressed. You know, you, you alluded to this, Benny, earlier, but I, I want to ask each of you individually. So since doing this research, since writing this book, and, and I should state that, and Benny, tell me if you agree with this statement, that what men should do here for their prostates, by association, women should do for their breasts and their, and their, and their whole bodies, correct? Well, I don't want to overgeneralize. Yeah. Uh, I think there are studies around breast cancer, for example, alcohol and breast cancer uh, for women uh, is, is, a, is a risk factor. And, and, and we didn't, that didn't come across in our studies. Now, maybe nobody did the study. I don't know. But so, uh, so it's, 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 it's not the same. It's not identical. Um, but I think that it's safe to say that what we recommend in our book for prostate cancer, probably, generally speaking, impacts most cancers. Right, mm -hmm. right. Okay, fair, fair enough. Um, 
I also remember reading in in uh, in chapter one under you know can you prevent prostate cancer? You guys have the three circles: one's diet, one is exercise, and then the last one's remember. And then under remember, you have alcohol and you have smoking, mm-hmm. and how important, how important it is to I think maybe limit or refrain from those. But so how has writing this book and the information that you've gleaned, how has that reframed the way you guys now eat and maybe your, your, your family eats Benny and Maya, I don't know if you're single or married, but the way you and uh, your boyfriend or, or partner uh, eat and live. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, I guess I'll go first, but um, you know, I wouldn't recognize what I eat compared to five years ago. I mean, it's markedly a different diet uh, breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, it's completely different. And the pleasure is the same or more. Um, and I feel a lot better. Yeah. And how about your wife and your kids? Are they on board? They don't have uh, a <laughs> The kids are on board. They don't know they're on board just because that's what we eat. Yeah. And my wife, you know, she's happy to make the change. I mean, she's, she's, uh, feels really positive about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. Great. Thank yeah. you. How about you, Maya? Yeah, no, I think, um, I'm someone who, who loves to, to know, like, I like to have the information and when I make a decision, I like to make it with conviction. And after doing this book, I mean, the data is overwhelming. The story that's told is, is very powerful and it's very, very direct. Uh, there's a direct cause and effect that we can see. And now I definitely eat with more conviction than I did before. Yeah. One thing just to add, like in the last month or so, I've been playing with the air fryer and tofu. Mm. And they're really, you can like, uh, you know, the tofu comes out great, little crunchy cubes and the Mm -hmm. kids dip it in sauces. And and we're just having fun uh, enjoying the food. And and so... um, I'm a big fan of keeping fun and pleasure as part of the important ingredients uh, in making this happen. Yes, here, here. So where, if, if people want more information uh, on preventing prostate cancer, uh, in addition to getting this book, where can they get the book and where, do you guys have a website or anything like that that you can um, tell so people to go to? Google the book, it's sold on all places that sell books. Um, and we'd also be happy to provide our email addresses uh, if people want to reach out and ask questions. Um, we have this information and way more, and we'd be happy to share it. Wonderful, wonderful. Maya, are you in Michigan right now? Yes. Okay. And Dr. Benny, you're in Stanford? Yes, Northern California. Yeah, yeah. Well, you guys, I just want to say on behalf of um, myself and the Plant Strong podcast, Thank you for all your work in bringing this book uh, out to the world. I think it's going to really help many, many men prevent prostate cancer and um, appreciate you bringing this passion project to life. Thank Thank you you so much. much. Thank you for having us. Yeah. And thank you for being the vehicle to help get this message out because without people like you, you know, we wouldn't get the message out as effectively. So thank you very much. Oh, yeah. My pleasure. All right, you guys, give me some some plant strong fist bumps right here. Boom. <laughs> All right. Prevent prostate cancer. Yes. <laughs> Wonderful. The book Preventing Prostate Cancer is available now. And 
there's a link in the show notes if you're interested in in learning more or purchasing the book. We'll also be sure to add their contact information if you have more questions. Remember, you can reduce your risk of prostate cancer with practical Plan Strong solutions. Have a great week, and as always, keep it Plan Strong. Thank you for listening to the Plan Strong podcast. You can support the show by taking a quick minute to follow us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Leaving us a positive review and sharing the show with your network is another great way to help us reach as many people as possible with the exciting news about plants. Thank you in advance for your support. It means everything. The Plant Strong podcast team includes Carrie Barrett, Lori Kordowich, Amy Mackey, Patrick Gavin, and Wade Clark. This season is dedicated to all of those courageous truth seekers who weren't afraid to look through the lens with clear vision and hold firm to a higher truth. Most notably, my parents, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr. and Anne Cryle Esselstyn. Thanks for listening.